If you have your Bibles today, would you find the book of Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we started a series, Who Are We Looking For? in regard to the search for our next youth pastor. And we looked at last week the qualifications for those who would serve in the pastorate. This week we will look at the responsibilities of those who would serve in the pastorate. Ephesians chapter 4. While you're finding that, I probably have neglected. I don't know if I have or not. I'll just do it again just in case. Just to be on the safe side. Um, and I do it at the risk of embarrassment, but I need, need to do it anyway. These people are very humble people, but I'm going to mention we have people in place who have already been working with Brother Dustin with the students who are ready just to continue on so that there's not a lag, so there's not a gap. We have people who have stood in the gap already and are prepared. So I want you to be in prayer over the Hoffmans and over the Cottons. They've already been engaged on Wednesday nights. They will continue that. And then um, Brandon as well, he's going to step into the Sunday school teaching role. And so y'all be in prayer over these folks in the interim time. In Ephesians 4, we're going to look at the responsibilities of a pastor. Now, there are many different texts we could go to to look at the responsibilities of a pastor. There are many different um, references and explanations through the scriptures. Paul wrote many things directed towards pastors and their responsibilities. But in Ephesians 4, we get good general topics, good general headings about this matter. So beginning with verse 7, Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness or deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Here in this text, we're going to look at some very specific responsibilities, really responsibilities that I think other passages fall under. Now, our text here began with verse 7. It began by pointing out that because Jesus descended from heaven to the earth, to the cross, to the grave, to those in prison and proclaimed victory, then ascended and is now highly exalted, he has given to each of us gifts. Because of the work of Christ, we each receive a gift of grace. That is, each child of God has a distinct spiritual gift 
assigned by and measured out by our Lord. Now, in this regard, God has gifted certain men with spiritual gifts for the purpose of leading the church. They're listed here as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, and teacher. So these are the gifts we're going to look at today, those God has gifted and then vested with the responsibility of overseeing the church, of leading the church, of providing pastoral care to the church. Now, as we get into this, I want to point out that the responsibilities we see listed here have been assigned by God. That is, they have been issued from the throne of heaven down to earth. There are, in fact, folks who have many ideas about pastoral responsibilities. Many of these ideas begin here at earth and are shot up to the throne hoping to receive approval. But that's not how it works. Pastors follow the responsibilities assigned by God sent down to us as described in his word. So if these responsibilities don't align perfectly with your expectations, well, maybe your expectations aren't aligned with what God calls for the pastor to be responsible for. But I'll leave that to you and the Holy Spirit as we begin to look at this. We have already established the qualifications for those who would serve in a pastoral role, what are the responsibilities? Well, we're going to see those here. And as we begin, let me point out, if you're ever wondering, as a ministry leader within the church, you're not the pastor, but you oversee an area of ministry. You, you head up some facet of church ministry. If you ever wonder, well, I wonder what responsibilities I should really try to follow these same ones. So as I talk about the responsibilities of a pastor today, please understand this is a very good framework for anyone who serves in ministry, period. But these specifically apply to a pastor. So let's jump right in. What are the responsibilities for a pastor as explained here in Ephesians chapter 4? Well, the very first one we see, pastors are responsible to be teaching shepherds. That's the very first responsibility given here. A pastor is to be a teaching shepherd, a shepherd who will teach. Now, I will explain that as we pull apart the text. I want to draw your attention to verse 11. And he himself, that's the Lord Jesus, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The Lord Jesus has given to the church certain officers he has gifted. There are four listed here. The first two are apostles and prophets. Now, as I understand the text, I believe that these two offices of the church, apostles and prophets, are no longer functioning offices of the church. I believe the apostles were those who were specifically chosen by the Lord, who specifically gave evidence or testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. The apostles, I believe, references those who bore witness to the resurrection of Christ were specifically chosen by Christ. This would include the original 12 disciples minus Judas Iscariot, but including Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas. Those were the apostles you read about in the book of Acts. 
They were chosen by the Lord. They could give specific testimony as witnesses of the resurrection. These apostles include Paul. Because Paul encountered the risen Lord on the road to Damascus, therefore he could give testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and he was specifically called by Jesus to serve the role of apostle. These men laid the foundation of the church. That's what you see in the book of Acts. They laid the foundation of the church. They received and declared the revelation of God's word. They spoke the testimony of Jesus Christ, and they spread the gospel, built the church on the cornerstone of Christ. They became the foundation layers for the church. That's the book of Acts. Then God gave them word we have recorded in the various epistles in the New Testament to further that foundation, to further build the church. These men, God specifically confirmed as ministers of the gospel by performing signs, wonders, and miracles through them. Once again, all in the book of Acts. We have also mentioned here prophets. Those specifically gifted to further the foundation of the New Testament church. You see them, once again in the book of Acts, serving in reference to local churches. Not just a random prophet of the nation, not an Ezekiel or an Isaiah, but with a church, a specific church. And when you read about them, what you see is that they would speak specific revelations. You will find an example of speaking a specific revelation of impending danger or a catastrophic event or something along those lines. You also find reference to them in the book of Acts of expounding upon revelation of God already given. Taking what God has said and expounding it further. Kind of what a pastor does nowadays. These two apostles and prophets were instrumental in the formation of the New Testament church. In fact, in this book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, it says that the household of God, being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. See, Jesus is the foundation of the church, but he used the apostles and the prophets to lay the foundation of what we know as church today. These two offices of leadership were essential. They were fundamental in the foundation of the church. And the Lord used them instrumentally to build upon the truth of Christ and establish the church. Verse 11 continues. He gave some to be apostles, some to prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So we see... Another category listed here, evangelist and pastor-teacher. The evangelist is one who proclaims the good news with a focus on those who are unbelievers. We know about evangelists, that they come and they preach these powerful sermons with the goal of seeing lost people come to salvation. That office was ordained by Jesus, and it was orchestrated in the New Testament church. But when you study the office of evangelist in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, the New Testament example of an evangelist fits much more in line with what we would consider a pastor. 
Because in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when you look at these evangelists, here's what you see. They didn't just go preach a series of sermons and then walk away. They didn't roll in to one town, preach their sugar stick sermons, roll out to the next town. They came, they preached the gospel, they saw people converted, they began to lead people to the gospel, they would plant a church, they would oversee the spiritual growth of those within the church, they would formalize that congregation and pour into the congregation, and then they would move on. Modern day terms, they were church planters. They went to the unreached, they reached them with the gospel, they grew them spiritually, they saw a congregation form, once it became established, then they moved on. That's the office of an evangelist in the book of Acts. Philip is the most prominent example of one called to be an evangelist, and that is what he does time and again. That now brings us down to this last position mentioned here in verse 11. He gave some to be pastors and teachers. The pastor teacher, the teaching shepherd is what that refers to. That word pastor in the Greek is from poimain. Poimain refers to a shepherd who provides control and care over a flock. It carries the reference of a presiding officer, a manager, a director of an assembly. Poimain, to be the shepherd. That is, the pastor is to shepherd the flock of God. He is vested with the responsibility of care and control over a particular flock. He has this responsibility to see to the needs of the flock. Poimain, shepherd, provide care and protection and leadership to God's people. The word focuses on pastoral care. That pastoral care element of the pastorate where you tend to the needs of the congregation. Where you try to take care of the congregation. In simplest terms, it's simply tending God's people. The pastor is called to tend God's people, to shepherd them, to shepherd. And so we began to see Jesus gifting certain men with this office of pastor-teacher, the shepherd of the church, the one who will care for the needs of the congregation the one who will protect the congregation, who will lead the congregation. Poimain, pastor. I want you to look at the next word, though. See the next word after pastors? See that conjunction? And? When we say and, we mean and also, including. That's not the best interpretation of the word. Kiai. What's interpreted and. In this context, really most likely it should be interpreted that is or in particular. The pastor that is a teacher, the pastor who in particular teaches. That's the best interpretation of the text. So when we see the offices of the church given here, it's not pastors and teachers, it's the pastor who teaches. The pastor who in particular will teach. That's the best interpretation. 
In this context, the word teachers becomes an explanatory statement of pastor. What does the pastor do? He teaches. That's what that means. Not two distinct positions, but one combined. The shepherd who will teach. The teaching shepherd. God has given pastors the responsibility to be teaching shepherds. To be pastors who will teach. So there's this element of tending the people and teaching the people. Caring for the flock and instructing the flock. That's the responsibility of the pastor. To be a teaching shepherd. One who will shepherd, who will care for, protect, and lead while teaching the truths of God's word. The word teacher there literally means to teach, but in particular to instruct in doctrine. To instruct in doctrine. Not to teach some good life skills, not to teach some motivational elements, not to teach good self-esteem, to teach doctrine. The foundational truths of Scripture. So the pastor is called to be a shepherd who will teach, instruct, Doctrine. When we pull the text apart, we see a very clear responsibility given here. Along with shepherding the flock, the pastor must instruct the flock in doctrine. He must teach the truths of God's word. The first responsibility explained here is that of pastoral care and biblical instruction. Now, when it comes down to how do you balance that, I believe the example of the New Testament is pretty clear that priority is given to biblical instruction. Both are important. You don't neglect pastoral care. But the Bible, the example of the New Testament, is a heavy emphasis on the doctrinal teaching. The apostles themselves set that precedent in the book of Acts when there were some pastoral care duties that needed to be done, but they said, whoa, 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 uh-uh. We're giving ourselves to prayer and the study of the word. Other people in the church have to take care of this for us. They set the precedent. The Apostle Paul elucidated further upon it. Emphasis must be given to the instruction of the doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. These things command and teach and give attention to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. When Paul was instructing Timothy through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, Timothy, no matter what you do, make sure you instruct the church in the words of faith, in good doctrine. Command them, teach them, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Don't neglect their needs, but by all means, make sure you're preaching and teaching the truth of God's word. So what does it mean to be a teaching shepherd? Well, you care for the flock, you instruct in doctrine. Now you can go to multiple passages to see individual examples of that. Individual 
exhortations of what you do to do that. I'm not going to go through all those today. I will mention them to you just so you're aware. But we're going to stick to the overall general topics of Ephesians 4. Listed in order as you come across them, a teaching shepherd has specific responsibilities mentioned in Scripture. For example, Acts 15, 22, pastors are responsible for determining the polity of the church. Acts 20, 28, pastors are responsible for overseeing the church. 1 Timothy 3, 2, pastors are responsible for explaining doctrine. 1 Timothy 3, 5, pastors are responsible for the care of the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17, pastors are responsible to preach and to teach. That same passage, pastors are responsible to rule in the church. That is general oversight. Titus 1, beginning with verse 7, pastors are responsible for proclaiming truth. Titus 1, 9, pastors are responsible for exhorting and refuting those in the church. James 5, 24, pastors are responsible for praying for the church. 1 Peter 5, 2, pastors are responsible for shepherding the church. 1 Peter 5, 3, pastors are responsible for being an example for the church. Individual expectations given to the pastor, obligations that fall under the heading of, you need to be a teaching shepherd. So the pastor implements all these things. Why? Because he's called to be a teaching shepherd. That's his first responsibility, to be a teaching shepherd. Now, these individual facets of pastoral duty become more involved and really are more summed up in the general statement found in verses 12 through 15. That's where we're going to look at next. The second responsibility of a pastor listed here. Pastors are responsible for equipping the saints. Pastors are responsible for equipping the saints. Excuse me. None of y'all work with a coat on, do you? It makes no sense to work with a coat. Pastor, the only person is supposed to put on a coat to go to work. That's ignorant. Pastors are responsible for equipping the saints. Let's look at the text. Verse 11, Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be these pastor teachers. Why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The pastor is responsible for being this teaching shepherd. He's also responsible for equipping the saints. The offices of leadership that God has given to the church are for the purpose of equipping the church to serve God's kingdom. The pastor is to be equipping the saints to do the work involved in God's kingdom, to serve the kingdom. That word equipping, Katartismos means to restore to original condition, to make useful and complete. In other words, the pastor is to see that the saints become useful for the work of God's kingdom. Useful for the work of God's kingdom. That's the equipping of the saints. The pastor is responsible for providing the resources and the guidance needed so that church members had this opportunity to become complete in their usefulness to God's kingdom. You see, we started out there in verse 7 recognizing that because of the work of Christ, we all have been given a measure of grace. We're all gifted in some capacity with a spiritual gift. We all have a tool of some sort to use for the kingdom. The pastor is then 
supposed to equip you to fully use your giftedness for service in the kingdom. You may be a hammer or a screwdriver or a wrench or a paintbrush or I don't know, but as soon as you figure it out, you're supposed to say, there's what that person is. Let's equip them to do the work. So this list of duties I ran through, when you combine all the actions there, they culminate for the purpose of equipping the church. That exhortation in doctrine, the refuting, the setting the example, the giving oversight, the leadership, the teaching, the preaching, and on and on and on. All that is for the purpose of equipping the saints. To equip you. Pastors are called to equip saints. What for? It says here, for the work of ministry. You're to be equipped for the work of ministry. Pastor's goal is not to have these high, holy roller, nice-looking church members who look great in a pew. Pastor's goal is to equip you to get your hands dirty in doing the work of the kingdom. That's equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. To do the work of ministry. That phrase for the work of ministry refers to doing a work, to labor at, to accomplish the needs that must be done. What it says here is the pastor is to see that you become useful, that you might labor at accomplishing that which is needed in the kingdom. That means the pastor is not not called to accomplish all that must be done in God's kingdom. He is not called to meet all the demands that arise in the church. The pastor is called to equip saints to meet the demands that arise in the church as they seek to fulfill the work of the kingdom. The pastor's calling is to help church members be prepared to accomplish what must be done to do the work of the kingdom, to fulfill the work of ministry, to meet the needs that arise within a church. The pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not do the work of ministry for the saints. It's that whole idea of that old saying, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, but teach a man a fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Same principle there. The pastor could do the work of ministry you're supposed to do for you, and it'd get done then, but what about when he's not there? What about when God calls him somewhere else? What about when something happens? See, the goal of the pastor is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry so that ministry never stops. The pastor's not needed. The pastor's trying to work himself out of a job. The pastor's trying to equip the church to do so profoundly in accomplishing their usefulness in the kingdom to accomplish the work of ministry. He's like, wow, man, I guess I'm not needed. And if I'm gone, it still happens. Why? Because you've been equipped to do the work. That's the calling there. That's the calling. So let's move this to a real life example. Let's talk about a youth pastor. We won't talk bad about him because one of them is still here, but it's never stopped me before. Here's an example. A youth pastor. It's wrong to think he is called to raise spiritually mature young people. 
It's wrong for me to say that youth pastor must raise spiritually mature young people. He must meet every need that arises in a teenage life. No. The youth pastor is called to equip parents to raise mature young people. The youth pastor is called to partner with parents and students so that they're equipped to meet the needs that arise in their life. The youth pastor is to be the spiritual equipper, the spiritual leader, the spiritual example to give teens and parents the best opportunity to be faithful in meeting the demands of kingdom living. If you want him to raise your kids for you, you've made a mistake. He's the equipper and the example. He's a support. He's a teaching shepherd who comes along to equip you. So we see here that pastors are called to be teaching shepherds who equip the saints. To see you utilizing your giftedness, because you have one if you have faith in Christ. Sometimes it's easy. You recognize the right tool, you put it at the right spot, you accomplish the work. Sometimes not so easy. Any of you ever tried to use an old crescent wrench that's been rusted up? You try to turn and turn and turn. You ever been there? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Sometimes church members like an old rusty crescent wrench, and the pastor's turning and turning. He knows they have a gifted tool to use. He can recognize it, but they're just so, I'm not going to do it. It's hard to get them to do it. Listen, when we call a youth pastor, one of his responsibilities is to equip parents and equip students. If he's trying to help equip you to be a parent, don't be like a rusty wrench. Squirt a little WD-40 on your spiritual self and get to be fluid a little bit because he's going to want to equip Let's keep moving. As we keep un unfolding the text here, we see another responsibility listed. He's given some to be pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Why has God gifted some people and called them to serve in the pastorate? Because pastors are responsible for edifying the body of Christ. Their obligation is to see that the body of Christ, the church, is edified. That is to build up the body. To build it up, to strengthen it. Now this is spiritual edification. The building up the church is spiritual edification. You have these pastors who teach, teaching shepherds, who want to equip you because they want to build you up spiritually. They want to strengthen you spiritually. That's a responsibility given to the pastor. This is not at all a reference to growing the numerical strength of the body of Christ. This is a spiritual strength, a spiritual growth. It's a spiritual edification mentioned here. Now, I would say that as those within the church grow spiritually, you should see numerical growth because they should be equipped to do the work of ministry and be doing the work of ministry so that growth occurs numerically as well. But the emphasis here is on spiritual growth, spiritual uh, edification, spiritual strengthening. So the pastor here is responsible for edifying the body. 
Well, what does he do? How does he do that? I think there are three keys to him fulfilling this responsibility. These may not be all-inclusive, but I think they are important. I think to edify the body requires a heavy dose of God's Word. To see people grow spiritually and be strengthened spiritually, the pastor must administer heavy doses of God's Word. I think that because Acts chapter 2, verse 32 says this, So now, brethren, I command you, or excuse me, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to edify you, and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. So Acts 20, 32 says, it is God's word which is able to edify, to build up, to strengthen. If I need God's word to be strengthened spiritually, then if the pastor is to edify the church, that means he must use God's word. I mean, I could tell you some pretty interesting stories. I could tell you some colorful stories. I could tell you some neat things I've read and seen and done. But none of that would build you up spiritually. You don't need what I think. You don't need my opinion. You don't need my experience. You know what you need? The truth of God's word. The pastor is obligated to take the truth of God's word and administer it to see the body is strengthened spiritually. That's what it takes for spiritual growth. Application of God's word. Acts 20, 32 called it the word of grace, the scriptures. That's what's able to build up and edify. Here's the thing. It is good to build up community within the church. We need community in the church. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the thing. A pastor can work on building bonds among the people so that there's great community, and he can still fail to edify the church. And it's good to build up exciting programming within the church. We need dynamic programming that is appealing. But did you know a pastor can dream up all kinds of dynamic programming and still fail to edify the body? We could develop this great giving church, and it's good to be a giving church. The Bible says we should tithe and so forth. A pastor could work so fervently to develop a giving spirit among the congregation, and he could still fail to edify the church. See, what's essential for the pastor is to build up the body, and what's essential for building up the body in edification is the Word of God. So what we find here is a pastor who will faithfully preach and teach the full counsel of God's Word. He is the one who will be faithfully edifying the church. Colossians 1.28, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's spiritual edification. That's spiritual growth. That's the process of sanctification. How did it happen? We preach Jesus. We warn every man. We teach every man according to wisdom. That's God's word. Why? Because we want to present them perfect before Christ. The pastor must preach and teach the Word of God. But I think it's just part of it. I think edifying the church also requires a heavy dose of prayer. A heavy dose of prayer. The pastor who wants to see the church edified is the pastor who prays faithfully over his church. Colossians 4.12, Paul mentions a particular man and what he does. 
Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. What was he praying for? He was laboring fervently that the saints could stand perfect within the will of God, that they'd be edified, built up spiritually. What we see here is the pastor must invest much time in praying over the flock. In fact, he must labor fervently. Laboring fervently is a peculiar phrase. It means to contend for. It means to struggle against. It means to endeavor with strenuous zeal. It's not just be committed to. It means fight through. It means to face opposition that is strenuous, but you apply such zeal, you fight through it in prayer. That's the kind of prayer the pastor gives for the church. Preaching and teaching is only part of the formula for edification. The pastor must be dedicated to praying over the congregation. He must endeavor with strenuous zeal in praying that the members of church may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. I don't know if you realize this, but there's much, much more work that goes on in the prayer closet and in the study than you can even dream of. I won't show you, but in my office, in that little storage closet, there's a whiteboard and a chair in front of it. And some of your names for specific needs are on that board. And every day during lunch for an hour, I sit in the chair in the closet. And I pray for your edification. Why? Because I'm responsible to see the body edified. So the, I believe it's the pastor who will faithfully labor fervently in prayer who will faithfully lead the church in edification. But I think that's still not all of it. This call to edify the body, I think it requires heavy doses of God's word. I think it requires heavy doses of prayer. But I also think it requires proper example. Proper example. As the Holy Spirit led Paul to instruct Timothy in preaching, in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul tells Timothy, be an example to the believers. Not to the lost, to the believers. Be an example to the church. In word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, set the example of edification for them. Set the example of spiritual growth and maturity for them. You see, I believe a pastor has to preach and teach the example of Christ, but he himself must exemplify spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. If he's to lead the body in edification, he needs to be an example of one going through that process himself. You see, the sermons the pastor preaches, the prayers he prays are of no effect if he can't live out an example of sanctification himself. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not as being lords over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. Live it if you're going to say it. Set the example. I think like the Apostle Paul, the pastor who can say, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, he is the one who will faithfully lead the church in edification. 
So the pastor's called here. He's given the responsibility to edify the body, to build the strength of the body spiritually. But here with this responsibility, we're told a little bit more. Let's look at the text again. Verse 13. He edifies the body of Christ. Why? Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. Edifying the body is important because it produces a unity within the body. The unity of faith, it says here. That is unity based in faith. Unity based on the Christian faith. It is unity that comes based on like doctrine, like belief, like faith. It's unity that is gained through the commonality of our faith. It's unity that comes as the church is equipped together, as the church does the work of ministry together, as the church is edified together, this unity forms. It's the unity of faith. It's a result of edification and being equipped to do the work. It also says here, edification produces the proper knowledge of the Son of God, the proper knowledge of Christ. Till we all come to the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, that phrase there, is not a statement about saving faith. It's a statement about the knowledge of those who have saving faith. Epignosis, a full and complete knowledge, a full and complete understanding, a full and accurate comprehension. It's this idea of going deeper and gaining a more full understanding as you experience Christ more profoundly in your personal walk. How's that happen? You're being equipped and edified. And so you come to this place of having a richer, fuller understanding of your Lord and Savior because you experience Him more profoundly. It's this process of edification that takes us into the deep waters with Jesus that helps us get to the higher pinnacles of understanding. It helps us grasp those things that we didn't quite grasp before. To help us experience the fullness of a relationship with Jesus. And not only that, edification produces spiritually mature saints. Notice that phrase, till we come to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, Jesus is the standard by which we measure ourselves. Jesus is the, the measure of full spiritual maturity. Where do I line up on the scale of spiritual maturity? Well, I need to compare myself to Christ because he is the perfect example of full spiritual maturity. He is the goal. Where do I fall in that? Well, the goal of edification is to move us up the scale towards the standard of Christ. To see that church members measure up to this standard, striving towards his standard of perfection. You see, we always get this thing of, well, now, we, we can't be perfect. Well, okay, we can't. But who says we can't strive for it? Well, we can't, we can't achieve perfection. Uh, that's a cop-out. That's your justification. That's your excuse. Quit giving it. Strive for the perfection of his standard. What's the purpose of edification? To drive you up that scale as you strive for
for the perfection of Christ to be demonstrated in your life through your spiritual maturity, through your spiritual growth. The process of spiritual growth, of spiritual maturation, that's the pursuit of edification within the church. That's why the pastor is responsible for edifying the body. The text continues. Verse 14. He's given some to be pastors and teachers. Why? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried away with every wind of doctrine by trickery of men, by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things in him who is the head. Here's the next responsibility of a pastor given in this text. Pastors are responsible for seeing saints grounded in sound doctrine. The pastor is responsible to see that the church is grounded in sound doctrine. The ultimate goal of equipping and edifying is so that the body, the church, is anchored to sound doctrine rooted deeply in sound doctrine, tied to the foundation of sound doctrine. What this means is that those in the church grow to be spiritually mature and confident in true doctrine. So confident in what they believe and understand and know they're not tossed to and fro with other winds of doctrine, with other teachings that are out there, with other fallacies, misinterpretations, and lies that swirl around us. The pastor's goal is to see each member so grounded in doctrine they can confidently withstand and stand against and refute lies and misinterpretations and false doctrines. They're confident in refuting such things because they're so grounded in the truth. You understand, don't you, that Satan has introduced a myriad of lies about Jesus, about the church, about God's Word. That from the very beginning, Satan has warred against the truth of God, trying to mislead people. This isn't anything new to our time. He misled Eve, causing doubt upon what God had spoken as truth. To the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, God said, There are prophets speaking in my name who tell lies. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, Hey, look, there are false messiahs and false prophets who do signs and wonders for the purpose of misleading people. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that even before we had the full canon of Scripture completed, that there were those misinterpreting the writings of Paul causing error to be introduced within the church. And he says, you need to be on guard about such error. There are attacks on sound doctrine. There always have been. There always will be because Satan wars against the truth of God. And our world has been convoluted with misinterpretations and erroneous philosophies and humanistic ideologies that war against the truth of God. And Christians have bought into them. Why? Because they haven't been taught sound doctrine. It's not their fault. It's the pastor's. The pastor must labor to see the parishioners of the church so well grounded in doctrine that they do not fall for the error of distorted doctrines, 
for the statements of false teachers, for erroneous ideologies, because all those are simply lies from Satan. Those in the church should never fall prey to the trickery of men, to cunning craftiness, to deceitful plotting, because they should be grounded, anchored in sound doctrine. My friends, please recognize that the world that surrounds the church plots against the truth of God daily. The lives are presented so that they sound so good and even blend in with Scripture sometimes. Through trickery and cunning craftiness, through deceitfulness, those in the world will do all they can do to mislead saints. Not even unbelievers, but mislead those in the church away from the truth of God. To mislead people away from the soundness of doctrinal truth. And pastors who have failed to be adamant about grounding their churches in sound doctrine have allowed Christians to fall for crazy humanistic ideologies, worldly philosophies, erroneous interpretations of the Bible. How do you think that wokeism can take root within the life of a Christian because he or she is not grounded in sound biblical doctrine. That's the pastor's fault. How is it that biblical truth can be compromised to accommodate sinful lifestyles within churches because the people are not grounded in sound biblical doctrine? That's the pastor's fault. How do believers' stomach compromise in the name of tolerance? Because they have not been grounded in sound biblical doctrine. And that responsibility falls at the pulpit. The pastor is responsible for preaching and teaching sound doctrine. And you want to know the truth about the truth? The truth is not accommodating. It is absolute and by nature cannot accommodate everyone's viewpoint. It cannot accommodate everyone's beliefs. It's absolute. But many pastors have sacrificed the absolute truth of doctrine to accommodate the views of their church members. They have failed in their responsibility to the church. My friends, the pastor is not supposed to make you feel good about your own beliefs. He's called to present the absolute biblical truth and challenge you with sound doctrine. And it's between you and the Holy Spirit what your belief becomes. Those in the church should be grounded in sound doctrine. Now what happens when they are? Verse 15 happens. But speaking the truth in love. You know what happens when church members are soundly anchored to sound doctrine? They are able to refute the lies of the world. They are able to refute the contradictions to biblical truth. They are able to refute the misinterpretations of God's word. And when you're confident in your ability to do that, you don't get defensive. You don't get confrontational. You can speak with love because you're confident in what you believe. You can speak with grace as you express your understanding of doctrine. 
The reality is, my friends, if you haven't figured this out yet, the pastor doesn't go everywhere with you, and he will not be able to fight all of your battles, to argue all of your points, to refute those who come against you. What he's called to do is to equip you, to edify you, to teach you sound doctrine so that you're able to go out to where you go and do these things for yourself. Spiritual maturity, being equipped, being edified, being anchored to the truth, should enable you to speak the truth in love. Demonstrating the love of Christ and His grace as you share what you know to be the truth with others. One last thing. One last thing and we'll close this thing up. One last responsibility we see listed here in this text. After he says, speaking the truth in love, he says this, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. The pastor, pastors in general, no matter where they're at, pastors are responsible for guiding saints toward full submission to Christ. The pastor has been called to see that individuals and the church corporately come to this place where they fall in full submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That phrase, grow up in all things, that reflects a growth in faith that produces this willingness to yield all things to Jesus, to give all areas of life over to his control. That's what that phrase means, to grow up in all things, to grow spiritually to the point where I hand all things over to the authority of Christ. Be it my career, or my kids, my schooling, my friends, whatever it might be, I hand it over, yielding it to the authority of Jesus. What we see in this statement is that the pastor equips the saints, edifies the body, grounds the body in sound doctrine for the purpose of seeing each member of the church commit themselves to fully abiding in the will of God. That's the ultimate goal right there. To see every person fully submitting to the will of God in their lives, abiding in that will, living in that will. See, that's the end result of these responsibilities. The end result of a pastor who will faithfully fulfill his responsibilities to the flock of God sees that flock abiding under the authority of Jesus Christ individually and corporately. That means submitting the entirety of life to his will, abiding in his purpose. In fact, the greatest joy pastors ever know is when they see individuals growing to be who God has called them to be, doing what God has called them to do, abiding faithfully under his lordship, living in his purpose. Because everything we're called to do leads to that point. But here's one thing you got to know for sure. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And a pastor can do all of this and lead you to the throne of God, but he can't make you buy into one thing. 
to be fully submitted to the will of God and abiding in his will, to be equipped, to be edified, to be grounded in doctrine, to be all these things and take part in all these things, you have to buy into them. You have to put in the effort. You have to be committed. Because all the pastor can do is bring it. You have to pick it up and take it. So we know what the responsibility of the pastor seems to be. But as we close, here's what I'd like to ask you, church. How are you responding? How much effort are you putting in? Where are you at in this whole ordeal of measuring up to the standard of Christ? It could be that you've never met Jesus personally. You can't even begin to measure up. In fact, the Bible says you're an enemy of God. You're alienated and separated from him. That's what sin does. Sin separates us from God now and eternally. God doesn't want that for us. In fact, the Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what God did was he entered this world, taking human form, taking our sin upon himself, dying on a cross to remove wrath from us, being put in a tube, rising again that he can offer us forgiveness and eternal life if we'd call out to him with a heart of repentance and faith. That's where we start. And if you've never done that, that's where you start today. And then you seek to be equipped edified, grounded in doctrine so that you can fully yield yourself to the will of God in your life. Where are you at today? 